Clause 3, Recess Appointments. The President shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate, by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. During recesses of the Senate, the President may appoint officers, but their commissions expire at the conclusion of the Senate's next session. Section 3, Presidential Responsibilities. He shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union, and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses, or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them, with respect of the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper, he shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers, he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and shall commission all the officers of the United States. Clause 1, State of the Union. The President must give the Congress information on the State of the Union from time to time. This is called the State of the Union Clause. Originally, Presidents personally delivered annual addresses to Congress. Thomas Jefferson, who felt that the procedure resembled the speech from the throne delivered by British monarchs, chose instead to send written messages to Congress for reading by clerks. Jefferson's procedure was followed by future presidents until Woodrow Wilson reverted to the former procedure of personally addressing Congress, which has continued to this day. Kesevin and Sidak explain the purpose of the State of the Union Clause. The State of the Union Clause imposes an executive duty on the president. That duty must be discharged periodically. The president's assessment of the State of the Union must be publicized to Congress, and thus to the nation. The publication of the President's assessment conveys information to Congress, information uniquely gleaned from the President's perspective in his various roles as Commander-in-Chief, Chief Law Enforcer, Negotiator with Foreign Powers, and the like, that shall aid the legislature in public deliberation on matters that may justify the enactment of legislation because of their national importance. Clause 2, Making Recommendations to Congress. The President has the power and duty to recommend, for the consideration of Congress, such measures which the President deems as necessary and expedient. At his inauguration George Washington declared in his inaugural address, by the article establishing the Executive Department it has made the duty of the President to recommend to your consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. This is the Recommendation Clause. Kesevin and Sidak explain the purpose of the Recommendation Clause. The Recommendation Clause also imposes an executive duty on the President. His recommendations respect the equal dignity of Congress and thus embody the anti-royalty sentiment that ignited the American Revolution and subsequently stripped the trappings of monarchy away from the new chief executive. Through his recommendations to Congress, the President speaks collectively for the people as they petition the government for a redress of grievances, and thus his recommendations embody popular sovereignty. The President tailors his recommendations so that their natural implication is the enactment of new legislation, rather than some other action that Congress might undertake. Finally, the President shall have executive discretion to recommend measures of his choosing. Sidak explained that there is a connection between the Recommendation Clause and the Petition Clause of the First Amendment. Through his performance of the duty to recommend measures to Congress, the President functions as the agent of a diffuse electorate who seek the redress of grievances. To muzzle the President, therefore, is to diminish the effectiveness of this right expressly reserved to the people under the First Amendment. Kesevin and Sidak also cited a Professor Bybee who stated in this context, the Recommendation Clause empowers the President to represent the people before Congress, by recommending measures for the reform of government, for the general welfare, or for the redress of grievances. The Right of Petition Clause prevents Congress from abridging the right of the people to petition for a redress of grievances. The Recommendation Clause imposes a duty, but its performance rests solely with the President. Congress possesses no power to compel the President to recommend, as he alone is the judge of what is necessary and expedient. 
Unlike the necessary and proper clause of Article 1, which limits Congress's discretion to carrying out only its delegated powers, the phrase necessary and expedient implies a wider range of discretion for the president. Because this is a political question, there has been little judicial involvement with the president's actions under the clause as long as presidents have not tried to extend their legislative powers. In Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company v. Sawyer, 1952, the Supreme Court noted that the Recommendations Clause serves as a reminder that the President cannot make law by himself. The power to recommend legislation, granted to the President, serves only to emphasize that it is his function to recommend and that it is the function of the Congress to legislate. The Court made a similar point in striking down the Linatum veto in Clinton v. City of New York, 1998. When President Bill Clinton attempted to shield the records of the President's Task Force on Health Care Reform as essential to his functions under the Recommendations Clause, a Federal Circuit Court rejected the argument and noted in Association of American Physicians and Surgeons v. Clinton, 1993, he recommendation clause is less an obligation than a right. The President has the undisputed authority to recommend legislation, but he need not exercise that authority with respect to any particular subject or, for that matter, any subject. Clause 3, Extraordinary Sessions and Prorogation of Congress. To allow the government to act quickly in case of a major domestic or international crisis arising when Congress is not in session, the President is empowered to call a special session of one or both houses of Congress. Since John Adams first did so in 1797, the President has called a full Congress to convene for a special session on 27 occasions. Harry Truman was the most recent to do so in July 1948, the so-called Turnip Day Session. Additionally, prior to ratification of the 20th Amendment, which brought forward the date on which Congress convenes from December to January. In 1933, newly inaugurated presidents would routinely call the Senate to meet to confirm nominations or ratify treaties. Clause 3 also authorizes the president to prorogue Congress if the House and Senate cannot agree on the time of adjournment. No president has ever had to exercise this administrative power. In 2020, President Donald Trump threatened to use this clause as a justification to prorogue both houses of Congress in order to make recess appointments during the COVID-19 pandemic, although he does not have the authority to do so unless either the Senate or the House of Representatives were to alter their scheduled adjournment dates. Clause 4, Receiving Foreign Representatives. The President receives all foreign ambassadors. This clause of the Constitution, known as the Reception Clause, has been interpreted to imply that the President possesses broad power over matters of foreign policy, and to provide support for the President's exclusive authority to grant recognition to a foreign government. Clause 5, Caring for the Faithful Execution of the Law. The President must take care that the laws be faithfully executed. This clause in the Constitution imposes a duty on the President to enforce the laws of the United States and is called the Take Care Clause, also known as the Faithful Execution Clause or Faithfully Executed Clause. This clause is meant to ensure that a law is faithfully executed by the President even if he disagrees with the purpose of that law. Addressing the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, William McLean declared that the Faithful Execution Clause was one of the best provisions. If the President takes care to see the laws faithfully executed, it will be more than is done in any government on the continent, for I will venture to say that our government, and those of the other states, are, with respect to the execution of the laws, in many respects mere ciphers. President George Washington interpreted this clause as imposing on him a unique duty to ensure the execution of federal law. Discussing a tax rebellion, Washington observed, It is my duty to see the laws executed, to permit them to be trampled upon with impunity would be repugnant to. According to former United States Assistant Attorney General Walter E. Dellinger III, the Supreme Court and the Attorneys General have long interpreted the Take Care Clause to mean that the President has no inherent constitutional authority to suspend the enforcement of the laws, 
particularly of statutes. The Take Care Clause demands that the President obey the law, the Supreme Court said in Humphrey's Executor v. United States, and repudiates any notion that he may dispense with the law's execution. In Prince v. United States, the Supreme Court explained how the President executes the law, the Constitution does not leave to speculation who is to administer the laws enacted by Congress, the President, it says, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, Art. 2, Section 3, personally and through officers whom he appoints, save for such inferior officers as Congress may authorize to be appointed by the courts of law or by the heads of departments with other presidential appointees, Art. 2, Section 2. The President may not prevent a member of the executive branch from performing a ministerial duty lawfully imposed upon him by Congress. Marbury v. Madison, 1803, and Kendall v. United States ex Relationy Stokes, 1838, nor may the President take an action not authorized either by the Constitution or by a lawful statute. Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company v. Sawyer, 1952, finally, the President may not refuse to enforce a constitutional law, or cancel certain appropriations, for that would amount to an extra constitutional veto or suspension power. Some presidents have claimed the authority under this clause to impound money appropriated by Congress. President Jefferson, for example, delayed the expenditure of money appropriated for the purchase of gunboats for over a year. President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his successors sometimes refused outright to expend appropriated money. The Supreme Court, however, has held that impoundments without congressional authorization are unconstitutional. It has been asserted that the President's responsibility in the faithful execution of the laws entitles him to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. Article 1 provides that the privilege may not be suspended save during times of rebellion or invasion, but it does not specify who may suspend the privilege. The Supreme Court ruled that Congress may suspend the privilege if it deems it necessary. During the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln suspended the privilege, but, owing to the vehement opposition he faced, obtained congressional authorization for the same. Since then, the privilege of the writ has only been suspended upon the express authorization of Congress, except in the case of Mary Surratt, whose writ was suspended by President Andrew Johnson regarding her alleged involvement in the assassination of President Lincoln. In Mississippi v. Johnson, 1867, the Supreme Court ruled that the judiciary may not restrain the president in the execution of the laws. In that case the Supreme Court refused to entertain a request for an injunction preventing President Andrew Johnson from executing the Reconstruction Acts, which were claimed to be unconstitutional. The court found that the Congress is the legislative department of the government, the president is the executive department. Neither can be restrained in its action by the judicial department, though the acts of both, when performed, are, in proper cases, subject to its cognizance. Thus, the courts cannot bar the passage of a law by Congress, though it may later strike down such a law as unconstitutional. A similar construction applies to the executive branch. Clause 6, Officers' Commissions. The President commissions all the officers of the United States. These include officers in both military and foreign service. Under Article 1, Section 8, the states have authority for the appointment of the officers, of the militia. The presidential authority to commission officers had a large impact on the 1803 case Marbury v. Madison, where outgoing Federalist President John Adams feverishly signed many commissions to the judiciary on his final day in office, hoping to, as incoming Democratic-Republican President Thomas Jefferson put it, into the judiciary as a stronghold. However, in his haste, Adams' Secretary of State neglected to have all the commissions delivered. Incoming President Jefferson was enraged with Adams, and ordered his Secretary of State, James Madison, to refrain from delivering the remaining commissions. William Marbury took the matter to the Supreme Court, where the famous Marbury was decided. 
Section 4, Impeachment. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States, shall be removed from office on impeachment for, and conviction of, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The Constitution also allows for involuntary removal from office of the President, Vice President, Cabinet Secretaries, and other executive officers, as well as judges, who may be impeached by the House of Representatives and tried in the Senate. Any official convicted by the Senate is immediately removed from office, and to prevent the President's Article II appointment power from being used as a de facto pardon the Senate may also vote by a simple majority, that the removed official be forever disqualified from holding any future office under the United States. Constitutional law expert Senator Matthew Carpenter reported that without the permanent disqualification clause impeachment would have no effect, because the President could simply reinstate his impeached officers the next morning. While no other punishments may be inflicted pursuant to the impeachment proceeding, the convicted party remains liable to trial and punishment in the courts for civil and criminal charges. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.